Ladies and gentlemen, I think we'll look to make a start, if that's okay. We'll get folks to settle in. Great, welcome back everyone. Uh, we, we hope your, your early evening in Princeton was a delightful one. Uh, we're back for our final plenary session of the day, um, and our speaker this evening is John Barclay. Um, John Barclay is the Lightfoot Professor of Divinity at Durham University. Um, educated at Cambridge in Classics and then in Biblical Studies, John taught for two decades uh, at the University of Glasgow before taking up his post at Durham in 2003. Um, as others on our speaking list, uh, he'll be well known to many of you from his pub publications in the field of the New Testament. Uh, John has a particular kind of interest in the interrelationships between Judaism and early Christianity um, with uh, uh, important works in his, in his uh, quiver, including Jews in the Mediterranean diaspora. Um, and uh, a contribution to the ever-expanding critical edition of Josephus. Uh, he edited and did the translation of Against Appians some time ago. Um, significant works on Paul, which puts him in the ambit of this evening's talk, um, include uh, Pauline Churches and the uh, Diaspora Jews, um, published first by Moore Seebeck and then by Erdmans in 2016, uh, and of course the most recent book, uh, the widely discussed uh, and uh, increasingly influential book, Paul and the Gift, um, Airman's in 2015 as well. Um, the, this evening, as the screen attests, for which we're thankful, um, the topic of his paper, the day is at hand, Bart's interpretation of Pauline eschatology. Would you welcome John to the podium? Thank you very much, Phil. I, I, I thought we ought to at least start with this slide. I will have one or two others, uh, a text or two for you to look at, but, um, I just thought to remind you of the significance of this phrase, the day is at hand. I'm sure you've seen it on many billboards around the country. Um, I once actually had a job as a sandwich board man. Uh, it's a little known fact. I wasn't actually saying the day is at hand, but I was advertising double glazing. Um, that was some time ago now. Now, Karl Barth's theological revolution began with his interpretation of Paul. While Barth scholars sometimes forget to read the early Paul as an exegete of New Testament texts, New Testament scholars rarely take Barth seriously as one of their own. But this conference, I'm glad to say, provides a good opportunity for mending that breach. In this paper, I'll focus on Barth's Roma brief, his first engagement with Paul, and thus his first engagement with Pauline eschatology. And I'll give special attention to his reading of the eschatological material at the end of Romans 13. Although Bart's Roma brief is rarely treated by friends or by foes as a commentary on Paul's letter, that is precisely what it is in both form and content, and Barth never ceases to insist that it should be read not as his own free theologizing, but as an attempt to understand Paul's message to the Romans. Indeed, this is so far the case that I think the following principle should apply. If you disagree with the theology that Barth advances in the Roma brief, as you're perfectly entitled to do, you are required not to advance general theological objections, but to offer a better clarification of the text, Romans, that Bart is tracking and interpreting. 
I'll focus here on the second edition of the Roma Brief because this became, by Bart's design, by far his most influential reading of the text. In fact, I think Bart's interpretation of Pauline eschatology in this work, in the Roma Brief, has been of fundamental importance, not only, of course, for theology, but also for New Testament scholarship. Bart offered here a theological reading of eschatological material that, if it is read differently, threatens to dislocate the New Testament from theology and theology from the New Testament. If the New Testament was as strange and as mistaken regarding eschatology as historical scholarship at Bart's time maintained, it was hard to see how theology could continue to deal with such an outlandish text as its ultimate source. Without Bart's reading, or something like it, it's difficult to imagine how Bultmann, or indeed anyone else in the 20th century, would have been able to develop a theological reading of the New Testament that could sound at all plausible among New Testament scholars. Whether Bart's reading is convincing is another question, but I think his treatment of our text, I'll venture to say, constitutes a highly significant moment in the history of theology and of biblical scholarship. Let's start, with, uh, let's start like Bart with the text of Romans. I hope you can read that okay. It's good workout for your Greek if you can remember if, if that's a little rusty. I projected here the Greek text with an English translation, which I've slightly adapted from the NRSV. And this is of Romans 13, 11 to 14. One should read this text, of course, in the flow of the whole of the letter to the Romans, just as one should read Bart's discussion of this text in the flow of the Roma brief. But we will make this small passage our launch pad from which we can move backwards and forwards. After a short passage in Romans 13 discussing love, which Paul describes as the one debt that we owe to each other, Paul writes this. And this, rather strange connection, and this, knowing the time, or what time it is, the kairos, that it is now the hour for you to wake from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us, or one could translate the Greek, our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live decently as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The passage famously that uh, Augustine read uh, uh, in the garden. Now, what would one say about this text in a straightforward reading of its eschatology? I'll come to Bart's reading in just a moment, but what would one say a standard, straightforward reading of this text regarding its eschatology? 
To say that the night is far gone and the day is near appears to put the day on a timeline. As day follows night in chronological time, so the day for which believers wait comes after the present in the sequence of time. Moreover, to say that the salvation is nearer now than when we believed indicates that that future is getting closer and closer as time passes. It stands on a continuum with the present and is getting progressively nearer. Thus, to know what time it is on a standard reading of this text would be would seem to mean to know that the time frame between now and the day is diminishing. In fact, to say that salvation is nearer than when we believed appears to be meaningful only if that time frame is relatively short. To take a modern example, if I were to tell you that the time when the sun will finally explode is nearer than the day that you were born, that's no doubt true, but it's not very meaningful. In comparison with the millions or billions of years before that explosion, the decades of your life or mine don't seem like a very significant interval. On the other hand, it does make sense to say that the year when the Earth tips over into non-reversible warming is closer to us now than the year 2016 when the Paris Agreement on Climate Change was signed. In this time frame, every year counts. If salvation is nearer than when we first believed, that implies it is not very far away. This straightforward reading of the text is indeed what stood out to New Testament scholars at the time Bart was writing the Roma brief. In the decades immediately before and after the turn of the 20th century, the discovery or rediscovery of Jewish eschatological or apocalyptic texts led to a re-evaluation of Jesus as the preacher of an imminent end of the world. That was a revolution in interpretation led by Johannes Weiss and developed by Albert Schweitzer that challenged at its heart the liberal reading of Jesus and of the New Testament. Weiss and Schweitzer insisted that what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God was not a religious community or an ethical ideal or an inward spirituality. What he meant was a miraculous cosmos-shattering event that Jesus and the New Testament authors expected to happen very soon. On this view, eschatology is not a marginal feature of the New Testament, safely kept at its fringes, but the core of its concern, the starting point of its theology. And it is an eschatology of an alarmingly literal kind, the real end of the world, operating with an embarrassingly short time frame. Everything pointed to the theologically awkward fact that Jesus thought that the kingdom would come very shortly, while Paul genuinely believed that the time is compressed and the form of this world is passing away. If eschatology is central, not just colorful decoration, but central, the consequences are huge. 
If Jesus and Paul were wrong on this, they were wrong on just about everything. And subsequent Christianity looks like a set of expedients to get round the awkward fact of the delay of the parousia. It's not clear from the Roma brief how much Bart had read of this New Testament scholarship, but he can hardly have been unaware of it. On his own admission, he was much influenced by Franz Overbeck. Overbeck took these historical findings of New Testament scholarship so seriously as to decide that the whole of post-New Testament Christianity was a fraud, an accommodation to a world that the early Christians thought would or should by this point have passed away. By the time Bart wrote the Roma brief, he was convinced by Overbeck that the New Testament message is eschatological through and through, centrally and without remainder. Consistent eschatology, consequent eschatology, it means just that, eschatology from first to last. The question for Bart was not whether that was true. The question was how it should be understood in theological terms. Now, in relation to Paul, it was possible to point to an important modification from the eschatology of Jesus, not in the nearness of the end, but in the location of the believer in that end process. If the resurrection of Jesus was an, es if the resurrection of Jesus was an eschatological event, not a random miracle, but the first event in the eschatological timetable, then the believer lives in a paradoxical in-between time. Schweitzer insisted that the only significant difference between Paul and Jesus was that Paul considered himself in the midst of the eschatological event to which Jesus could only look forward. For Paul, the resurrection was the first inbreaking of the age to come, the start of an eschatological chain of events that might eventuate soon in the final resurrection of all. Here's a quote from Schweitzer, as he put it memorably in his book, um, um, The Mysticism of Paul the Apostle. That wasn't published till 1930, but the main ideas had already been published in 1906. So here's Albert Schweitzer, mystic. In a tremendous paradox, Paul puts in the place of reality as presented to the apprehension of the senses, the reality which is valid for a thinker who understands clearly what moment in world time this is. Paul knows that the immortal world is about to rise by successive volcanic upheavals out of the ocean of the temporal. In the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep, one island peak has already become visible. But this is only part of a larger island which, still beneath the waters, still beneath the waves, is actually in process of rising and is only so far covered as to be just invisible. This larger island is the corporeity of the elect who are united with Christ. Now, just hold on to that image, because it's an image actually Bart's going to use too, but in an importantly different way. So one peak has just emerged out of the water, but Paul knows that the rest of the archipelago, as it were, is about to come up too. I love Schweitzer's images, they're fantastic. Schweitzer's interpretation of Paul as living in a paradoxical time of already but not yet 
already but not yet, has become standard among New Testament scholars. On this schema, the new world which has erupted in the resurrection of Jesus and in the gift of, and in the, gift of the Spirit overlaps with the old world. Instead of a simple sequence from the old to the new, elements of the new have been, as it were, anticipated in the present, brought forward so as to coincide with the old. And if the new has come flooding in, the old is clearly on its way out. But on this conceptuality note, the new age is another time period. Even it is if it is, as Schweitzer here describes it, the immortal world, it operates, note Schweitzer's phrasing, within the frame of world time. Among New Testament scholars, the tag, already but not yet, has become so familiar that it is rarely asked what sense it makes. The language presupposes we're talking about two time periods which overlap or interact, but are both conceptualized in temporal terms. The new age can be described in both tenses, in two tenses, present, that is what's already happened, and future, what is not yet, but the tenses are to be understood straightforwardly as two dimensions of time. The new creation, in other words, routinely understood by New Testament scholars, is another expanse of time even if one to be elongated to infinity. Now, how does Bart read our text? If you know Bart's Roman brief, as you all do much better than me, you'll know you have to work really quite hard to see how he gets from text to interpretation. But I'm increasingly convinced that it is worth the effort as I think he has soaked himself very fully in the wording and the sequence of Paul's text. So I would identify four key moves in Bart's reading. So the first is the link back to verses 8 to 9. I'll just remind you here of the text again. First, Bart links this paragraph closely to what was said before concerning love. Many interpreters have been puzzled by what our paragraph is doing at the end of chapter 13. And they've read it as a kind of coda to the whole range of ethical instructions in chapters 12 to 13. But Bart has attended very carefully to the start of verse 13, which reads, and this, kai tuto. And he takes the this to be a reference to what Paul has just said concerning love. In fact, he translates it, and do this, in Salka's tut. That is important because Bart, you will know, famously read love as the impossible possibility. So that what is said in our verses is taken to clarify love in that sense. Bart takes the phrase, knowing the time, a dot is ton chiron, to qualify this connective. Do this in knowledge of the time. Do this as or because you know the time. But he translates time here as Augenblick. Or translates Kairos as Augenblick. 
The sense is what I've said above about love is relevant when you know the Augenblick, the moment. So kairos doesn't mean a period of time, doesn't mean opportunity, it means the moment. I'll come back in a moment to Barth's interpretation of kairos as Augenblick, but it's important to note for now that Barth reads this eschatological material about the day not as a piece of information that the Romans might as well be informed about, but as the basis for the pattern and possibility of their lives. What's being discussed here, in other words, is not the last things in the sense of a future timetable, but a reality that impinges on the present. Note also the therefore in the middle, or then in the middle of verse 12. The nearness of the day is related to moral or existential alignment. It is not related to emergency measures preparing for a cosmic catastrophe. The passage envisages for the Romans two possible forms of life. You can live as in the day, or you can make provision for the flesh in a variety of destructive actions. But, and I think quite rightly, takes this eschatological material to concern a life-shaping awareness of one's present position. It is not imparting information or even giving comfort. It's designed to help the Romans wake up to the moment in which they're currently placed. So my, the second uh, move that Bart makes is to interpret the kairos as the eternal moment. Much hinges on the way Bart interprets the kairos. Not as a period of time or as an opportunity, but as a moment or instant, Augenblick, a term which he uses elsewhere in the, in the Roma brief, no doubt under the influence of Kierkegaard, but the eschatological scenario in 1 Corinthians 15, you remember, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What is this Augenblick which the Romans are to know? Bart takes this as a moment that impinges on the Romans now, and he makes heavy use in this context of the dialectic between time and eternity. What Paul is drawing attention to here is, and this is the crucial move he makes, is the eternal instant, the Aviger Augenblick. The instant, as he puts it, between the times, which is no moment within time. It is beyond time, but all times can, as he puts it, receive the full dignity of this moment. As we might say, can be open to it and participate in it. Time cannot contain this moment, although it offers parables of it, just as what we mean by the present is ungraspable, just when you've grasped it, it's past. So this Augenblick to which Paul draws attention is invisible and incomparable, a hidden reality to which time can only bear indirect reference, invites. What Paul is speaking of here concerns the eternal, which, and this is crucial, is not an extension of time, nor is it linear in any other sense. It is the fulfillment of time, its end, because it is also its origin. If we speak here of the future, it is, in Barth's language, the futurum aeternum, the eternal 
future. An expression, I think, designed to scramble our common sense but erroneous notion of the eschatological future as a future time. It's a future eternity, it eternum future. In Bart's reading of this passage, what Paul is calling for here is not preparation for a future time, but the faith to recognize that every moment in our time can be and should be qualified by the eternal moment, determined and given meaning by the invisible and impossible possibility created by God. Every moment of our time can become, Bart writes, this qualified moment. Qualificierta, Augenblick. Qualified by what stands beyond it and can alter it without becoming part of what it alters. Now, as I've struggled to make sense of what he's saying here, the best illustration that has come to my mind, although I recognize it is not perfect, is that of a mathematical bracket. If you know the Roma brief, you'll know how Bart uses this technique of illustration in relation to an earlier passage in Romans 13 about the state, but I'm, using it, I'm reusing it for another sense. I'm quite encouraged that also Bart uses this kind of thing. So, here's my mathematical bracket. I'm not a mathematician. We could think of our time, ordinary time, as a set of numbers within a bracket. All right, we might be three, we might be eight, we might be two, or we might be seven. The numbers within, but within a bracket. Outside the bracket, there is an unknowable something, let's call it X, that determines or qualifies everything within the bracket without becoming itself another number within the bracket. The, influx, the influence of the X runs across the whole set of numbers within the bracket. It determines the end of the sequence because it also determines the start. And to run up, as it were, against the final bracket is to run up against the reality that's determined everything within the bracket. Right? If you bump up, if you're the number seven, as it were, you bump up against the final bracket. What you're bumping up against is what has determined everything from the beginning. Right? That's what Bart means. The end is the beginning. The brackets here, note, are not parentheses as in a sentence, but as in a mathematical formula, signs of both inclusion and distinction. Every moment of time, each number within the bracket is determined by what lies beyond the bracket, beyond time, the eternal Augenblick. Each moment is thereby limited, but given meaning, relativized, but accorded value, or in Bartian terms, dissolved and grounded, shattered and taken up, condemned and drawn into God's purpose of salvation. As Bart puts it, each moment of our time bears the secret of revelation unborn within it. The pregnancy metaphor perhaps derived from the language of childbirth in Romans 8. To know the kairos is to become aware of this secret, even if it remains necessarily hidden. So Bart takes the sucker, the subject matter of this paragraph, to concern not some future cataclysmic event, 
but the necessity and the possibility of living now as in the day. Go back to our text. As he once famously put it, Christianity that is not eschatology through and through and without remainder has through and through and without remainder nothing to do with Christ. All right, the X determines everything. But because eschatology is, properly speaking, not about a period of time, a future eon, but a phenomenon outside of time, not within the bracket of time, even as a long extension of numbers, but outside the bracket, Barth takes this consistent eschatology to be about the unknowable and invisible at the limits of time, at the edge, as it were, of every moment of time. This eternal future has broken into time in the resurrection of Jesus as a historical but also non-historical event, an event in time but not of it. But it has not entered into time as a chronological phenomenon. Rather, it qualifies all time in every moment of past, present, and future. The total otherness of this eschatological Augenblick is carefully preserved by Bart by, by, by speaking repeatedly of its invisibility. Schweitzer, you remember, spoke of the one island peak, that's the resurrection of Jesus, already being visible, and the rest of the volcanic eruption rising and only just submerged beneath the water. Bart is careful to keep the whole archipelago invisible, in an image closely parallel to, to Schweitzer's, but also crucially different. As Bart says on Romans chapter 8, verse 18, then we perceive the time in which we live characterized as the time of now, that is, as the ocean of concrete reality by which the underwater island of now, of divine revelation of truth, is altogether submerged, but remains nevertheless altogether intact in spite of its shallow covering of observable things. I love the way the different image works. This now is not, so, is not a new eon of time which succeeds or overlaps chronologically with the past or present time. It's taken to stand, in other words, in infinite qualitative distinction from time. If it is eternal, it can hardly be said to begin somewhere. As Bart famously put it with some frustration in his uh, essay, the famous essay in Strange New World, what sort of eternity would it be if it should begin after something? If it's eternal, it can hardly be said to begin. If it is the end, it is also the beginning or origin, the ursprung. The end of time as its edge or limit, its grenzer, not as its finale. Third move. Bart is too faithful a reader of Romans to gloss over the fact that Paul speaks also of the nearness of this day. Though I think it might have been quite convenient for him to glide over that fact. The night, remember, our text says, is far gone, the day is at hand, or has drawn near. And more starkly, our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Or you could translate that, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 
Bart typically reads the language of nearness in spatial rather than chronological terms. The fact that the day is near but not precisely present in the sense of here means that it cannot be something that we possess or control. But what, asks Bart, can we make of the fact that Paul describes it as nearer in a comparative mode, nearer than when we believe? Bart, remember, insists that whatever may be said about the Augenblick is an eternal Augenblick, but he, he recognizes that we live within chronological time, within the brackets, as it were, just, and he mentions this just in passing, as Jesus also lived within the flux of time. There are differentials, he says, within time, times when we hear his voice, Psalm 95, and times when the word of the Lord was rare, 1 Samuel 3. If I understand Barta right here, he takes the proximity or distance of salvation to concern us. What varies is not the relative proximity of some external event along some historical timeline, but our relative capacity to be reminded or recalled to the truth. Note that the nearer references in our text follow after Paul's statement that it is, at, it is the hour for us to awake from sleep. For Bart, that indicates that what is at stake here is the degree to which, if you like, the nearness with which we are reminded of or wake up to the already existing eternal moment, the presence of Jesus Christ, which has to be made present to us as an event, as an aragnus in faith. It's not just a piece of information. The tension Paul, uh, that Bart sees here in the text between what has already happened and what still needs to happen, the dawning of the day and the need to wake up, is a sign that this text concerns not a waiting for the future, but what he calls an existential event happening, thus existentiella eragnis verden, a grasping by faith of the nearness or coming of Christ. Faith which Bart insists can never be a thing, a permanent possession or a settled disposition, is the constantly renewed grasping of a revelation that can never be grasped, or rather never be possessed, or better, rather than grasping, it is a being grasped by God who is always already before us and ahead of us. Nearness, in other words, he reads not as a matter of time, and it's not the passing of time that makes salvation closer because salvation is essentially not a time-contained phenomenon. Fourthly, Bart faces head-on the significance of this eschatological language, but he refuses the two alternatives currently on the theological table. On the one hand, there is the theological sidelining of eschatology, its relegation to a final chapter, where it can be safely insulated from the main theological themes, what Bart calls lulling us comfortably to sleep by adding at the conclusion of a Christian dogmatics a short and perfectly harmless chapter entitled Eschatology. This is what Bart associates with what he calls the piety of an unruffled culture Protestantism. And he is determined, by contrast, to take the eschatological basis of the whole New Testament more seriously than that. But on the other hand, the other option on the table is what we might call the literalist reading of the eschatological material, 
by which what Bach calls agitated people anticipate the end as a, quote, coarse and brutal spectacle, some magnificent or some terrible finale. For Bach, that would be to misunderstand the language of the New Testament, to take what can only be a parable as direct description of the indescribable. In Bart's words, the end which the New Testament proclaims is not an event in time, no fable-like fabelhaft destru destruction of the world. It has absolutely nothing to do with any historical, planetary, or cosmic catastrophes. For Bart, either to trivialize the eschatological content of the New Testament or to treat it over-literally would constitute an evasion of what he calls the bitter seriousness of the day that is at hand. Because we know that this day does not and cannot enter into time, we become aware of the dignity and significance of each given moment in time, conscious of its qualification and its ethical demand. Then, he says, we should await the parousia. In other words, says, you think, well, what's he, what is he going to, how's he going to take, await the parousia? In other words, take our actual life situation as seriously as it really is, knowing Jesus Christ as the one who begins and finishes. That's awaiting the parousia. This reading of, Bart's, of, sorry, of Paul's language functions, I would say, as a kind of demythologizing, even if Bart does not quite use that language at this point. To call descriptions of cosmic catastrophe fabelhaft is, however, practically the same thing. Elsewhere in the Roma brief, Bart indicates he's very aware of the limitations of human language, including Paul's, noting that if God's promise is not received in faith, it remains merely a, quote, mythical eschatological statement. He also elsewhere in the Roma brief criticizes Augustine and the reformers for taking Paul's protological language regarding predestination in the wrong way. They represented it, quote, in mythological form as though it were a scheme of cause and effect, thereby robbing it of its significance. So in the same way that Bart refuses a mythological expression of protology, he warns against the literal or mythological understanding of eschatology. He does not use Bultmann's language of demythologizing, but he surely here laid a foundation on which Bultmann will build. Taking Paul's language in this non-literal sense enables Bart to, to escape the strictures of those who say that Paul was simply wrong. He expected the end of the world soon, but after 900 years of the delay of the Perusia, we should simply distance ourselves from Paul at this critical point. Delay, Bart insists, is an absurd notion because the day of Jesus Christ cannot and will not enter into time at any temporal point. It's no more delayed, he insists, after 1900 years than it was delayed in the time it took for Phoebe to travel to Rome. The underlying motive for Bart is, I think, not an apologetic defense of the New Testament against those who thought it just plain factually wrong, but a careful safeguarding of the otherness of God. 
if the parousia is treated as an event in time, an event for which one waits for time to go by, this makes God, for, as Barthes puts it, into an idol or a godling. Gott zu einem Götzen machen. A God subject to time, dependent on the passing of time. This is indeed the whole point of the dialectic between time and eternity. Only when God is placed outside time as the creator of time, as its beginning and its ending, can the total otherness of God be preserved. Elsewhere, Barth frequently stresses that to confuse time with eternity would be to debase what we mean by God, to reduce God to a concrete, tangible thing as historically time-bound as everything within creation. What's crucial about our waiting, our hope or expectation is that we're waiting on God, on whom both we and the time we inhabit is totally dependent. If this is translated into waiting for a future event, we lose sight of the purpose of the whole letter to the Romans, which is to speak of a God who is not us and not part of time and the righteousness of God that saves only because it forces us upon the limits of our existence and thereby releases us into the reality of grace on which we have no hold. How should we evaluate what I've traced here in Bart? Well, first I think Bart's great achievement was to take seriously the eschatological or apocalyptic coloring of the New Testament and to insist that we should neither disregard or marginalize this fact. He's also, I think, absolutely right to insist on this, as on, as on everything else in interpretation, what is required if we are truly to understand the material is that we think it through for ourselves and not just parrot what Paul says. We're to nachdenken, not just nachsprechen. The question for Bart was always, what is the sacha of this text, or what is this text pointing towards? And I think he's correct to take our paragraph as focused not on an eschatological timetable, it's not giving information about the end times, it's focused on what it means to live in the present, in the light of the moment instituted by Jesus Christ. Paul's main subject here is what it means to live as in the day and how to put on Jesus Christ, which is something other than waiting for future events to unfold. Bart has attended very carefully to the silences and to the multiple complexities of this text. Paul says the day is at hand, but he doesn't spend time, at least in this text, saying when or how it will come. Moreover, Paul indicates that although the, that day is only near, it's time already to wake up and to act as in the day, as if the future were in some sense already here before it's arrived. On the one hand, as Bart notes, those who have been called holy at the start of the letter have to be warned not to do all kinds of unholy things. On the other hand, they're treated as capable of bearing weapons of light, even though the night is still present. This is a characteristic Pauline complexity. Earlier in Romans, Paul had said, we have been saved in hope, a statement which manages to point both backwards and forwards at the same time. Paul's tendency to mess with tenses, to fool around with time, is something that all Pauline interpreters have to grapple with. 
Luther re-expressed Paul's complexities with his simul justus et peccator, Bart was perfectly entitled to build on Luther with his own all-embracing dialectics. All Pauline scholars note these Pauline complexities, but few, I think, think it through with anything like the rigor shown by Bart. At the same time, one wonders if Bart's existential or avant la lettre demythologizing of Paul's nearness language constitutes an evasion of the difficulty of Paul's conceptuality. At least I think Bart might have signaled more clearly that what he was doing was a bold translation of Paul's language of time into an alternative idiom. Even if we agree with Bart, the Greek of verse, 13, uh, verse 11 could be translated, our salvation is nearer than when we believe. In other words, with stress on the existential reality of our salvation. Something is lost when this is interpreted as far as possible outside of a chronological sense. Elsewhere, Paul seems to most interpreters clearly to expect the parousia of Jesus to be quite imminent in chronological terms. As Paul puts it, then we who are left will be caught up with Jesus in the air, 1 Thessalonians, and the time is compressed for the form of this world is passing away, 1 Corinthians 7. In our text, the comparative nearer than when we believed is hard, I think, to remove entirely from a chronological frame. Bart is perfectly entitled to interpret all this language in non-chronological terms, but he might have been clearer about what he was doing. His theological translation into a different idiom in the name of the sacker of the text might be seen, in fact, as a kind of unspoken critique. Although Bart was, of course, notoriously unwilling in his subsequent debate with Bultmann to allow that he was truly distancing himself from Paul. It might have been more honest to say... Well, you know, Paul thought that salvation was chronologically around the corner. But what he was really talking about was the nearness of Christ in a different sense. He bumped up, as it were, against the edge of time when he encountered the resurrection of Jesus, and he mistakenly thought that meant the end of time. We can, <clears throat> but, uh, sorry, it might have been more honest to say that we can remove Paul's thought from the mythological eschatology, not just the angels and the trumpets, but also from its time frame, in order to preserve what Paul was trying to say. An uncharitable reader might suggest that Bart was simply fudging this issue, offering a powerful and fruitful theological reading of the text, but failing to flag up its problems, which are not, I think, just problems of over-excitable literalists, but problems in the conceptuality of the text itself. Bart was soon to leave behind his time-eternity dialectic, which was only ever utilized to express a more fundamental emphasis on the otherness of God. He was also, of course, to rethink the relation between Christ and time so that something more positive could be said about their intersection than that the eternal moment appears but only ever appears between the times. What Bart later recognized as the one-sidedness of the Roma brief was certainly a weakness in this regard for all its other strengths. In our passage, Bart notes only in passing that Jesus lived like us within the flux of time. And he'll make much more of that Christological phenomenon within a few years. 
As we've seen in Bart's theological interpretation of the eschatology of Romans, although eternity is not merely abstract and transcendent, what has disappeared is any sense of linearity. Everything seems punctiliar, never sequential. And the problem for us is that we live our lives within time, and we cannot make sense of our lives without giving them some narrative texture. Nor can we rest in the chaos and injustice of our sin-ridden world without the hope that God will judge and redeem both us and this world in some ultimate sense. For us, that can only be expressed in the future tense. And if the future is translated without remainder into some non-temporal sense, the eternal future, as in some forms of Gnosticism, something is lost in translation. Moreover, if we hold on to this future language, it's not just because we need it ourselves, but because it is everywhere significant in the eschatology of Paul and other New Testament texts. Elsewhere, I think Bart was able to make more sense of, of Pauline notions of duration over time, as in Paul's statements in Philippians 3 regarding running a race, leaving behind the past to strain forward for the prize. As Bart rightly notes in his commentary on that text, Philippians 3, Paul is clear that his pursuit in order to grasp the future rests on the fact that he has already been grasped by Christ. The prize of the future is ultimately the call from above, or the call, as Bart reads it, that is valid above. In other words, we can certainly agree that if anything significant lasts over time and into the future, that if love, as Paul puts it, remains, remains, that is true only because it is undergirded and held by God, not because we or the extent of time that we inhabit have any independent significance. This certainly relativizes all notions of progress or development. And it must be true that the God whose justice we await is not a God who's waiting for time to pass. Nevertheless, it's possible to reread the statements about the future in the New Testament in a way that doesn't denude them of their future temporal sense or of the sense of continuity through time. Perhaps the God who holds us through the stages of our lives, through the future of our deaths, and through the passing of the ages, is the God who makes sense of these sequential, successive phenomena, ambiguous and puzzling as they remain to us. If we await the redemption of our bodies, as Paul says, we await the redemption not just of time, but of the passage of time, which is part of our embodied state. And perhaps that involves not an abstraction from, but a redemption of their confused and ambiguous narratives. If that is so, we might want to insist that we still await the parousia of Christ in a chronological sense, even if on a time scale quite different from Paul's, because the time that it takes to wait is part of what God will finally redeem. Thanks very much for listening.